The nice thing about playing an ABBA song as the lead into your sermon is you have time to go get some water. <laughs> so I know it's not an 80s song. Maybe some of you are aware of that. And, and our, our rule was that while we're in the gym, while the work, the renovation work is being done in our sanctuary, we would either refer to or play songs from the 80s because that's how our church got its start in this gym back when it was a school in 1980. But... The song fits really well with the sermon, so you'll have to cut me a little bit of slack. Uh, in this song, released in 1976, Money, 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 Abba sings about our obsession with money. They imagine all the things they could do if they had a little money. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a ball. Money, 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 always sunny in a rich man's world. Is that really what we dream of? What does the Bible have to say about money? That's what we're going to consider a little bit this morning. Well, it says a lot, in fact. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about almost anything else. More than he talked about sex, more than he talked about heaven or hell. Eleven of the 39 parables that Jesus tells touch on financial issues. Now, Jesus clearly thought God wanted us to be wise with our money and to use it to love God and to love one another. Joyce Meyer once wrote that you can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. I think that's a great way of summing up how our love hits the ground running or fails to. God calls us to love not in some abstract way, not as an idea, not as something where there's potential, but... He calls us to love by giving and by giving generously. So today we're going to step away from our series in Genesis just for one Sunday. It's a Thanksgiving standalone sermon. And we're going to look at what Jesus says about how generosity relates to the thanksgiving that we feel that we have for all that God's given us in Jesus Christ. We're going to open our Bibles to Luke chapter 12 in a moment. But first, let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it stands at the center of who we are as your people, as your church. And we thank you that you you have given us wisdom. Now, sometimes we bounce around, we're confused, we don't know what our next step should be. And we face challenges, adversity in our lives, but we, we praise you that you are God who has not left us without encouragement who has not left us without hope and we find that spelled out in your word so would you come today holy spirit and teach us about the hope that we have in jesus christ and it's in his name that we pray amen so we're going to read from luke chapter 12 verses 13 to 21 
And as I've been doing, I'm going to come out and stand right in the middle of y'all. And we'll read this. We'll stand in the middle to the right a little. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. So this past Monday, I got an email that caught my attention. It began, Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So far, so good. I am Margaret Bennett from Scotland. I am very sick and my doctor says I may not live much longer. That is why I am contacting you. I want to donate my fund to you. I have prayed over it, and I am willing to donate the sum of five million British pounds to you and your church. Yeah, baby. (laughs) Not just new carpet and new chairs. I'm envisioning a rooftop patio, multiple hot tubs. Okay, so it did sound too good to be true. But then again, these emails don't normally come from Scotland. And she knew about our church, and she'd prayed over it. So I read it the second time. That's when I noticed that the grammar was pretty poor. And there were multiple spelling errors. Kids, learn to spell if you want to want your scams to work in the future. I also noticed that the email came from a .az account. And I thought, hey, maybe Margaret retired to Arizona. Being rich and Scottish, that actually makes a lot of sense. Who wants to live out their final years in Aberdeen when you could be in Phoenix, right? But no, .az isn't Arizona, it's Azerbaijan. So I deleted the email, sadly. Here's another story. When I was in Toronto, there was a woman in her 90s who came to our church every Sunday. But otherwise, she kept to to herself. She was quiet and not all that involved in the congregation. One year before Christmas, a a group of us, university students and myself, went to visit her, and we gave her a poinsettia, as you do, leading up to Christmas. She lived in a one-bedroom apartment on Spadina Road. She had a lot of figurines, and her lifestyle was very modest. When she died a few years later, she left the church $2 million dollars. And she said specifically, I'm leaving this money so that you can share the gospel. And we were able to do some amazing, innovative, missional things with that money. 
So whether it comes to us in the form of an email, scam or otherwise, or whether it comes in an amazing story like that of someone leaving money to the church, stories about money grab our attention, I think. And we know that money can be used for good, but other times we let money get in the way of what matters most, I think. We envy those who have money. And actually, inheritances can be more of a curse than a blessing. When a rich relative dies, the estate can stir up conflict and division within a family like few other things. Maybe some of you have experienced that. And that is precisely where this story we've read from Luke chapter 12 begins. In the day of Jesus, in that culture, the eldest son got a double share of the inheritance. doesn't seem fair to us, but that's how it was. If there were two son, sons, the, the eldest one got two-thirds of the wealth that was left over, and the younger son only got a third. Daughters got nothing unless there were no sons at all. In this story, the younger brother seems to have not even been getting the smaller portion of the, inher- the inheritance that was his due. So he goes to Jesus for justice, and, and that makes sense because Jesus was a rabbi, and that, in that culture you would go to a rabbi in a case like this. But Jesus doesn't give him the answer he wants. Jesus instead asks him a question. Jesus says, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Why does Jesus not want to help this man? Doesn't the younger brother have a real complaint? Sounds to me like he does. But I think Jesus wants to go a little deeper. If you, if you dig into the question Jesus asks, in fact, you would have to wonder, who is Jesus? Okay, Jesus is saying he's not going to be a judge or an arbiter. Well, then, who is he? Often, I think we approach God with our own agenda. And we do this in our prayer life, most of all. We have things we want. And isn't that usually when we come to God? We want him to change our circumstances. Especially if we're in difficulty, we cry out to God. We want him to fix our problems, and we want him to do it now. Maybe we're considering getting more serious about our faith, or maybe you're here today curious about Jesus and this whole Christian thing. But I think first, we sometimes expect Jesus to tell our brother what to do before we're prepared to give him all of our attention. We expect him to tell that difficult person in our life right now how they need to change. We expect Jesus to make our boss appreciate us more. We expect Jesus to resolve some issue we're facing. And we often find the problem in our lives in another person. We blame them. Like the song says, I work all night, I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? And still there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too bad. I mean, it's Abba's profound. You've got to give them that. But if I had a little money, that is the solution, apparently, that our friends from Sweden have mapped out for us. And I think 
you know, we can we can have some fun with an Abba song, but I think that's how we approach God at times also. We want him to rule in our favor. We want him to take our side. We want him to deliver just a little money to bring a certain result. But Jesus knows better than we do what's good for us. And he doesn't want your money, no matter what your experience has been of churches in that regard. Jesus wants your whole life. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in Mere Christianity. He writes, Christ says, give me all of you. I don't want so much of your time, so much of your money and talents, so much of your work. I want you, all of you, hand everything over to me, all of your desires, all of your wants and wishes and dreams, turn them all over to me, and I will make of you a new self in my image. Give me yourself, and in exchange, I will give you myself. My will shall become your will. My heart shall become your heart. And if you haven't read Mere Christianity, a little plug for one of these two courses that start up next Sunday morning at 9, come out and it'll blow your mind. I quote it probably more than any book besides the Bible. So we read something like that about how Jesus wants all of us, but we're not so sure, I think. We've got our own plans. First, before we're prepared to go to God like that, we want a little money, for one thing. And yet we know that that never made anyone happy. We hear these stories coming out of the lives of the rich and the famous. Stories of totally dysfunctional families, marriages collapsing, all kinds of darkness, and yet we still want it for ourselves. And so it seems like we're prepared to settle for so much less than the abundant life that God wants us to enjoy. And that's where Jesus goes next in what he has to say to this young man. He proceeds to talk about the meaning of life. And he says to the man and also to the whole crowd, he says, be on your guard against greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, the literal translation is even more explicit. Jesus actually says we don't exist in the things we have. He's saying that he has come to tell us what our lives really are. And he warns us against coming to him, believing that our life amounts to some other thing whether it's your family, your friends, your health, or your money, your job, your possessions, or some passion of yours, some project you're working on, some interest you're pursuing. These are all good things, but Jesus warns us against finding our life in them, our identity in them. Because if you come to Jesus asking for one thing apart from him, whether you call him teacher or even God, you're not actually serving him. You're really using him. You're using him to get that life you dream of. But that's a life that will not hold together. That's a life that is not going to last. We heard that in our call to worship, right? God's love endures forever. It's the only thing that does. And so when we put our hope in this stuff, 
And you know how insidious it is, right? You want to upgrade your phone. You want a better car. You're working. You have money. How are you spending it? You dream of these things. And it gets in under our skin, and soon we start to find our very identity in them. Jesus says, I'm not here to help you get things that will make your life. I'm here to be your life. And then he tells us a parable to help us understand that. There was a rich man whose land yielded an abundant harvest. And this man thought to himself, what am I going to do? I don't have room to store all this this harvest. And so he comes up with a simple solution. He says, I'm going to build bigger barns so that I can keep my extra grain in them. And he says to himself, I'm going to have grain for many years to come. And so I'll be able to take life easy to eat, drink and be merry. Is there anything wrong with that? I mean, on the surface of things, isn't this man just being smart? Isn't this what your financial advisor will tell you to do? Maybe you are a financial advisor and you're going to have strong words for me over coffee after the service. Who among us isn't looking forward to the day? Maybe it's our retirement. Maybe it's a trip we have planned. Maybe it's a purchase of some item we've been saving for when we can enjoy ourselves. What's the problem with eating, drinking, and being merry? The guy in this parable really has done it right. He has lived according to the financial expectations of our culture, of millions of people around the world. But you start to get, I think, a little bit of a sense of the problem when you add up the number of times that as this story is being told, the man says, I, 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 Me, 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 me. My crops, my barns, my grain, myself. Everything starts to revolve around him and what he wants, what he thinks he needs. Quite a few years ago now, I took a course in the history of advertising at the University of Toronto. In the 1980s, there was a financial company by the name of E.F. Hutton. Some of you might recall it. And it grew at a tremendous rate during that decade until it became the second largest investment bank in North America. How did it achieve that kind of success? Well, as we learned in the course, a big part of it was incredibly successful advertising. Some of you might remember the slogan, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And that was a product of this successful advertising. In one of their advertisements, they had a Hollywood celebrity explain why he gave his money to be invested with E.F. Hutton. And the punchline in the ad was, he said, because it's my money. That's a line that really resonated with people. Because it's my money. I think that line still resonates with people. And so greed can show up as the perfectly reasonable assumption that it is my money, that I worked hard for it, that I've saved it, that I deserve to earn, I deserve to enjoy it. It's my money. But Jesus steps into that assumption and he says, consider another way. 
Jesus knows that we sometimes build our lives around delusional thinking. Did you notice in verse 16 where the harvest comes from? It doesn't say it came from the man's ingenuity. It doesn't say it came from the latest combines. Is that the right term, John? Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Whenever there's like a farming illusion in the Bible, I've got to talk to John Fletcher every time. Where does the abundant harvest come from? It comes from the ground. The ground yields up the harvest. It comes from the land, not from the man. And then the idea he has that he can take his life easy proves to be false also. God calls him a fool and says, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? And the implication is that there aren't other people in his life. The more we see our life consisting of our possessions, and the more we find our value, our very existence in our wealth, the more alone we are going to be. And this applies just as much to those of us who don't have money, but who desire money to the point of dwelling on it. The rich man in this parable wants what all of us want. He wants to guarantee his future. He's afraid of losing his substance. He's afraid of losing what matters. But what he loses in the process is his very self. He doesn't have anyone to love him or for him to love in the end. And the security that he so craved turns out to be an illusion. And so money can twist our perception of reality, of what matters. But the Bible teaches us that the only real security we have is in God. And God knows that we find our true purpose by loving him, by loving others. And so he sends Jesus to model life-changing generosity for us. Jesus who lays down his life, who goes to the cross, who gives it all up for each one of us. Jesus leads us into true riches, not by storing up wealth, not by taking care of his future, but by pouring out his wealth, his glory. He does it by emptying his barns. And that, quite simply, as we read this parable, is the message of Christian faith. Empty your barns, God says to us. Giving is at the very heart of faith. Giving is really a reality check on whether the love of God is real in your life. You cannot truly serve God unless you say to him that everything you have belongs to him. It's really not a rich man's world. It is our Father's world. He gives and he takes away. And for our part, we can't claim to love others and then refuse to share what we have been given with them. Did you know that in the early days of the church, a big part of the reason why the gospel spread so quickly, why the church grew so fast, is that Christians astonished their neighbors by giving their money away like no one else did in the ancient world. And it showed that something real had happened. Something had truly changed in them. They weren't just saying it. The culture in the early church, like our culture today, encouraged people to be loose with sex and tight with their cash. But Christians did exactly the opposite. 
one pagan writer in one of the earliest documents we have about the growth of the church in the first and second centuries. This writer said that Christians shared their table with everyone, but they would not share their bed. I like that. Do we share our table with everyone? Well, in a way, you've got a symbol of who we are, what we're doing, certainly what we're called to do with our food drive for Chalmers Community Services this morning. But I think even more, this comes home literally in our lives when we practice hospitality, when we open our doors, no matter whether we live in a mansion or we live in a studio apartment in a basement. Are we excited to give of who we are, our gifts, you saw that in the quilts this morning, our money. Anyone can say, God changed me. But the reality of God's generosity in the world will never make an impression on people unless they see the reality of our generosity to others. And they do. I hear stories of that all the time. And I know as I look out on you that so many of you are serving in so many ways across this city and beyond. So what does that look like practically for us as we think about giving? In the Old Testament, it's clear that God requires 10% of our income. It's called the tithe. But in the New Testament, it doesn't tell us what to give. I once heard a preacher describe it like this. He said, when people come to me and ask, you don't think Christians are required to give 10%, do you? That's just in the Old Testament, right? And he shakes his head and he says, no. No, that's not a requirement for Christians. And the person inquiring looks visibly relieved at that point. But then he goes on and he explains, I'll tell you why the New Testament doesn't give us a rule for tithing. Think about it. Have we received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than believers in the Old Testament, or have we received less? And then there's an awkward silence. But he continues, are we more in debt to grace than they were or less? Did Jesus just tithe his life and blood to save us or did he give it all? As Christians, we don't see tithing as a depletion of our resources. No, instead, giving opens us up to the fullness of Christ and all of God's goodness. When we make a sacrifice, when we give our money to the church or to any good cause, God actually loosens our grip on the material things in our lives that we hold on to so tightly so that we can open our hands, so that we can receive him and others. He reminds us that all we need is in him. And then he fills us with a spirit of thanksgiving. He draws our attention to a harvest that is even more lasting. And he changes us from the inside out. We become, in this wonderful phrase in the parable, we become rich toward God. In Jesus Christ, God pours himself out for us. According to God, and this is so much against our culture, According to God, the way to thrive is to help others to thrive. The way to flourish is to cause others to flourish. The way to fulfill yourself is to spend yourself. 
And so God redefines wealth through Jesus. Our world has the wrong idea about happiness. We think that we continuously have to be adding stuff to our lives, that we have to increase in order to be happy. But Jesus turns that assumption on its head. What does it mean to be rich towards God? Well, Paul spells it out in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus says, empty your barns. He pours himself out for others. He exerts power by serving others and through humility. In him, we've received the freedom to live with generosity, to put the needs of others before us, and to be generous not just with money, but with forgiveness, with some of the deeper things that matter the most. And to no longer be ruled by our fears of missing out, of not having enough, Now, that's a life that's worth living. And the good news is that Jesus doesn't wait for us to get it right. As he sent Jesus, he sends his Holy Spirit to come alongside us, as we've seen in Genesis, to hover over us. And so I want to invite you right now to to pray with me. And we're going to take just a few minutes. I think we're going to do it in silence. uh, Because I know there's something in your life right now that God is asking you to loosen your grip on. It may, it may actually be a physical thing. It may be something that is, in your mind, so precious to you that you're not willing to share it. It may be a way that you're using your resources to control someone. It may be a gift that you haven't shared with your church, with others. And so I invite you, maybe even to open your hands as you're sitting and as you're praying in silence and to ask the Holy Spirit to draw your attention to a person in your life who you're being cheap with, to a situation you're not giving yourself to. Why don't we pray now? Dear God, we we know this isn't abstract, that you direct our paths each and every day. But sometimes we are so blind, it is unbelievable. We don't see what's right in front of us. And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that in the silence of these next few minutes, that you would open our hearts and our minds, you would open our eyes to the difference we can make on your behalf in the world with some particular person or in some situation. Let's pray.
Dear God, out of our great thanksgiving for you and your gifts to us, we ask you to show us how we as your church can serve you in this place, in the city of Guelph, and to the ends of the earth, we pray. Amen.